Financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year. And then the inflation data came out, higher than expected. Friends, this isn't going away. It can't. The U.S. is $34 trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Text STRANGE to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation with gold. Text STRANGE to 989898 now. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, an author, researcher, explorer says pterodactyls, which were believed to become extinct some 65 million years ago, may still be with us. A fisherman was attacked and he fought back. And both of the, the animal, very large flying creatures, both the animal and the, and the, and the native man were, were severely injured. Both of them eventually died from that encounter. I want to tell you about something I discovered recently called carbon-60. I call it the miracle molecule. Now, you might remember an interview I did recently with a researcher, Chris Burris, who's looking to help people who experience pain, inflammation, loss of sleep, or lost mental acuity with his new C60 company, C60Evo.com. He has a product which is a consumable form of carbon-60 called ESS60 that's been proven in peer-reviewed, published research to extend the lifespan of test rats by 90% while allowing them to live tumor-free. That's pretty amazing. Those rats were given the C60evo.com formula. The formula is a powerful antioxidant, 172 times more powerful than vitamin C, and it's known to be a powerful anti-inflammatory. C60 is based on Nobel Prize winning chemistry. I highly recommend ESS60. The mighty Aphrodite and I take a tablespoon every morning and we're both pain free and sleeping better than ever. Discover the benefits of carbon 60. I call it the miracle molecule ESS60 from C60Evo.com. Now, make sure to use the coupon code RS1SPEC. That's RS1SPEC. 
Buy today at c60evo.com. That's c60evo.com. And don't forget the code RS1SPEC. This product has not been assessed by the FDA and is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Friday. Jonathan Whitcomb is standing by with some amazing stories of encounters with what he believes are pterodactyls. Those are the flying lizard-looking creatures from Jurassic Park with the leathery wings, long tails, long strange-looking heads with sharp teeth. Uh, Oh, by the way, I'll be hosting Coast to Coast AM coming up on Friday. January 24th, and then again on Saturday, Jan 25th. I hope you can tune in. Just go to coasttocoastam.com for a list of radio stations that carry the program. Jonathan Whitcomb is a passionate investigator of reports of living pterosaurs throughout the world. He explored part of Papua New Guinea in 2004, interviewing many natives who'd seen a large flying creature they call the Ropen. He's been investigating sightings of these flying creatures for 16 years now. Most of them have been in the United States. The estimated number of sightings suggests that the ancient legends of dragons seen around the world may not have been based entirely on fictional accounts. He's the author of Searching for Ropens and Living Pterosaurs in America. Jonathan Whitcomb, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Great. Thank you, Richard. Good to talk to you again. We haven't talked since we sat in your backyard in sunny California for my television show, The Conspiracy Show. That must be going on seven or eight years. What's been going on? Well, we've had quite a a number of things uh, happening over the last seven years or so. Um, I'm I'm living in Utah now, but the main changes are it's turned more and more into an international uh, research on apparent living pterosaurs. And the great majority of sightings, I believe, are actually that related to uh, certain species of uh, pterosaurs that are known from fossils. And uh, have you been back to Papua New Guinea since we spoke? No, I haven't been back. There is a, a man from Texas, Paul Nation, who has been back a number of times in the last seven years. And he's done some expeditions and uh, that's uh, so some things going on there. So tell me about uh, the uh, the legend. Well, I'll say the legend of the Ropen, although there are so many credible eyewitness reports. But tell me about the Ropen in Papua New Guinea. What it looks like, okay. who's who has seen it. Okay, it's. Um, I'm working with a number of associates: Garth Gessman, David Wetzel, uh, Paul Nation, and several others, including um, Peter Beach, the biologist in Oregon, and also uh, Milt Marcy, his friend, who also lives in Oregon. But much of what I do is just on my own uh, interviewing eyewitnesses. In Papua New Guinea, we have uh, two different types of flying creatures that both seem to be pterosaurs, but one of them 
we call rope, and that's the one that with the long tail. And that one is probably related to uh, uh, the ones that were seen in two sightings in Cuba in the middle of the 20th century. That's um, it's not just confined to Papua New Guinea, but um, the people who know about rope and most of the um, those who just know a little bit about it have, have heard about it only from Papua New Guinea, where where it gets its name in a particular island. And the celebrated sighting of a, terra, a pterosaur or a ropen in New Guinea from the Second World War, can you share that with us? Yes, that's an important sighting. It's actually two Americans were involved uh, in 1944, about the middle of the year. It was after the time when the Japanese military had mostly left uh, uh, many areas of New Guinea this is before the country of New Guinea existed. The, the island and several islands around it were called just New Guinea. Um, the main person that we're uh, interested in was uh, is the late uh, uh, Dwayne Hodgkinson. Uh, Dwayne uh, was the one who actually reported it uh, many years ago and started letting people know about what he had seen. His his partner, his friend, another army bo- army buddy in World War Two. Uh, has never come forward and does not want to, apparently to be involved with with uh, sharing the information. But we got a lot from Dwayne Hodgkinson. And what did he see? It was, at, at first, uh, they were in a clearing, jungle clearing. Uh, this was uh, just a little bit west of Finch Haven, which is the mainland of what is now uh, Papua New Guinea. And they were going up to, with a camera, in fact, a military camera to just uh, visit some natives in a village up there, and they had a native guide. The native guide walked a little bit ahead of them um, uh, into the jungle, and they were looking at some ants on a log and saying, wow, those are incredibly big, big ants, and nothing like that in the States, you know, that's, they're incredible. And they, and they heard a rushing noise, which later they realized and saw that it was a wild pig that was running through the clearing. This clearing was... Um, had grass about just maybe three feet tall, something in that order, and it was about 100, 100 yards, no, not 100 yards, it's only about 100 feet in diameter, so it was a fairly small field. Something started after they heard that noise, something rushing through the, the grass. Something on the other side, far side, about 100 feet from them, uh, took off. At first they thought it was a bird because it was flapping its wings and running, and then they, as they looked at it, uh, they realized it was something very unusual. Uh, Dwayne Hodgkin said uh, later when he was asked it, about it, he thought about it and said the tail length was about at least 10 or 15 feet long. But he wasn't concentrating that. He was fascinated by the head. It had a long head crest on it. Um, and the wingspan was pretty similar to a Piper tri- Tripacer that Hodgkinson had not long after World War II, I believe. A single-engine airplane. A, a single-engine airplane. Yeah, a small yeah. private airplane. A wingspan of about 29 feet for the Piper Tripacer. So that's a tremendous size for a flying creature. I'll say. So when did um, the Ropen supposedly, or when did pterosaurs supposedly die out, according to, I don't know, the fossil record? Well, the, the fossils really don't give a clear, succinct um, evidence of timetables. Uh, this is a big controversy about that. But whenever it was that the, the animals lived, from you know from the fossils, the standard model um, for for most paleontologists includes ideas about uh, 
extinctions, major extinctions uh, uh, event in particular about 65 million years ago. That's not what I believe, but that's what many people believe. Um, it's, it's not that they're all the same. There's two major types of pterosaurs, short-tailed and long-tailed. They're known as pterodactyloid and rampharynchoid. That's from the fossils. Now, from eyewitnesses that I've interviewed for 16 years from five continents from all over the world, and compiling them, comparing them, and working on what's going on, it seems that there are two major types of pterosaurs still living, though much, much more restricted in the types. In other words, when I mention living pterosaurs, I'm not trying to imply that that most of the pterosaurs we know from fossils are still living. It's not that. It's just that there are certain similarities that lead me to believe that the animals we have today, which are cryptids, they're not discovered. These cryptids um, are descended from some some species of those two general types, long-tailed and short-tailed. And getting back to Hodgkinson for a moment, is it Hodgkinson? Yes, H-O-D-G-K-I-N-S-O-N, I believe. Hodgkinson, right. What did he do after he saw this this creature? Uh, did well, he report it to his superiors? Uh, very unlikely. I mean, I, I know what's going on in, in the military, and that at that time included. Basically, the military is not interested in uh, in, t- in kind of taking records and writing down things about strange flying creatures. They're just interested in their military. But um, he did get laughed at, and some people didn't believe him. And what happened immediately afterwards? Well, I should go into a little more detail. Um, as the t- creature took off and flew up into the air, the wing flaps, I believe, were about maybe approximately two seconds per frequency of the wing flap. Uh, total frequency, that would be maybe one second up flap, one flap, down flap. And the whole grass all around was just knocked down by the, the rush of air. He, um, I, I go into detail in my scientific paper, all the details that he gives us about the different dimensions, the, ta- the length of the neck, the length of the head, and so on. That was the kind of thing, the long, sharp, uh, pointed head crest of the back. But it took off into the air and flew out of view over the trees. Now, it was only a matter of seconds before, as they were talking about, what in the world was that? It's only seconds, and it flew back in the opposite direction over the same clearing, perhaps to look around to see what was going on, because it probably was sleeping in daytime. These are generally nocturnal animals. And they looked at it again, got a beautiful side view of it again, and then it disappeared. And then after it flew out out, out of view the second time, it never returned. And that's when the two men realized, oh, they're carrying a, a military camera. And ever since then, we've... We've had the same problem. People are so shocked by these animals that if they do have a camera, they totally forget that they have a camera. Right. It's the last thing from in your mind, probably. It's been going on from 1944 till um, like just a few months ago. I believe it's the last time that sort of thing happens. People are just so shocked that they don't realize that they have a cell in their pocket or a camera handy. Sometimes people realize that like in... Uh, I'm trying to remember now from way back years ago, a man in, uh, I can't say for sure it's Ohio, but it was somewhere in that part of the Midwest of the United States. A man was in his backyard, and he saw, I saw a pterosaur, probably related, and then he 
but this is year, many years ago before this was well known, and he realized he has a camera in his house, but the thing was flying off, and he realized if he was to go into his house to get the camera come back, it would be gone. And so he just concentrated, looked at it, and, and then he reported it to me. But it's, it's something that's been going on since 1944 to present. People are just not prepared, totally shocked at the appearance of something that's supposed to be extinct. And um, you get a lot of reports from missionaries because they tend to, to locate or tend to work in very remote, isolated uh, stretches of wilderness where, where these ropen are, are, are found. Do you continue to get, um, do you continue to get reports from, from Christian missionaries and what, what are they saying? Yes, over the years, quite a few reports. Um, it's not that the majority of reports are from missionaries, not at all, but it's just that there are a significant number from, from them. There, um, two, some of the most important ones I, I've been putting out in the last 12 months, I've been putting out YouTube videos on a new uh, YouTube channel. It's called Protect Animal Life. And uh, basically, it's just to try to get attention to, to get some kind of protection for these flying creatures. It's not about all different life. I, I can't get into all that. It's just a little, my little business. But the um, Christian missionaries, and uh, let's say for example, in New Guinea, uh, one of them is, uh, well, I should say a former, many years ago, she was a missionary. Her name is Harriet Sconce, S-C-O-N-C-E. Uh, she had a really incredible sh uh, close-up view of one that was just gliding. It was over a canyon, just a short distance from her, and it was just almost eye level with her. So she was just looking at eye to eye, uh, and she was scared. And she ran into the uh, the little uh, medical uh, uh, hut they have there that uh, another missionary or two were in, and they were so busy that she didn't mention it at the time, but. She reported it later, and, it's, and she's been videotaped in the interview, so you can see that. But she was just uh, astonished. She never realized that there were such creatures alive, and she was, you know, being in such a place, she was kind of scared. And what about the local aboriginals? What do they tell you? Because they have actual interactions uh, with them, and some of them are kind of violent. Yes, um, that's that goes back for decades. I mean, we've had, we see this, the, the expeditions, I wasn't involved. I'm not one of the pioneers. I wasn't involved until uh, 2003, but in the 1990s, there were some expeditions, and there's a number of reports. The missionary Jim Bloom, he's probably retired by now, I imagine. He's been there so long, but uh, James Bloom, for the Baptist missionary, uh, he actually talked with quite a few uh, natives, and um, he got some information. I, I been looking at that, comparing it with other reports, and I think he didn't get a totally um, broad kind of a, I mean, he's not a professional interviewer, you know, and he didn't get a totally broad uh, view of the sightings, but he got certain ideas about it, and I, we've uh, put that, written that, and published it, and but there are um, some things he didn't write out. He, he talked with certain individuals in certain areas, and uh, people got some mistakes a, a couple of decades ago thinking, well, there's a ropen and then there's the duas. Well, uh, they actually called it dua for a while on the internet. Uh, dua, there's no such flying creature. This duas is the real name, and it's probably mainly the same species. It's not a different type. It's just that there are different languages in Papua New Guinea. The natives 
from, for example, Ropa and uh, natives in Umbay will call it Ropan. But that's not all the natives in the whole island, only certain villages. And uh, the Kovai language is the, wor- the word uh, they have in the, the Kovai language. But if you go in another village where they speak a different language, they'll have a, they might use the word um, uh, duas. Um, and it prob- mainly means the same animal. It's, not, it's just a different la- word, right. a different language. Right. And the aboriginals talk about uh, f- their fishing boats being attacked by these creatures, dive-bombed and so forth? Well, there's one notable one I know of because I heard about that from a, a man is a native who lives uh, north of Umboy and uh, those islands up there. Not Manus Island itself so much as some of the smaller ones. <coughs> and uh, in that event, a fisherman was attacked and he fought back. And both of the, the animal, uh, probably rope, and it's not, we don't know for sure, but it's a very large flying creature, both the animal and the, and the, and the native man were, were severely injured, and both of them eventually died from that encounter. And uh, tell me about the, the Ropan's appetite for dead bodies. Yes, that's one that's better known, and I understand why. But it's not, as some people have assumed, meaning that that's a principal part of the diet of a Ropan, not at all. <coughs> when... Um, when the for example, in Umboy Island, when I was there in the year 2004 in my expedition, we did actually have a funeral procession come by. And in fact, that waiting for that uh, funeral right down the road had caused me to have to wait a, a couple of days or so. We, we didn't want to show any disrespect for the funeral, so we had to wait and not go on the actual excursion to look for the rope until the funeral was over. But... Um, at that time, it was a wooden coffin, and uh, I don't know how many years uh, before 2004, the natives were y- using wooden coffins, but, be- but before they did, they were having a trouble sometimes, and it's not means that every time that there was a person buried, that it would be dug up by, the body dug up by a rope, and not that, but just that whenever there was um, an attack on a grave many, many years ago, then, of course, everybody knows about it. Everybody talks about it, and everybody and it gets outside of, of Umboy Highland, and it's heard about all over. Now it's known about all over the world, all the rope and the one that eats dead human bodies. But it's because humans really are upset and talk about such things. You know, if, there's some, if something is dug up, you, know, you talk about it, and then being an animal that's unusual and thought to be extinct, then it has amplified. The main diet of the rope on Navumboy Island, for example, is fish, and there are uh, some scavenging, but that's probably mainly either fish or the giant clams or other similar uh, ocean life around the reefs that surround Umboy Island. That's what it really eats. And um, where where do they nest? Well, we have some interesting reports recently. Um, trying to remember the exact year. Um, uh, I believe it was the year 2015, early in the year. I could be mistaken, but it's generally about that time. Two Americans um, went on the expedition, and they uh, this is to New Britain Island. It's a larger island, just, just a little... Um, uh, east of Umboy Island. And that expedition, they learned a number of things from the natives, and they actually had an incredible sighting, and they actually videotaped a large uh, parent pterosaur, both both men, Milt Marcy and Peter Beach. Peter Beach is a biologist, by the way. They both uh, 
had no trouble saying it was a pterosaur that they saw and, and videotaped. Uh, but that's a long story. The other, the main part of the story now is where do they nest? Okay. They heard from the natives about a location. They actually did see a tree that apparently uh, was an old one that, where that used to have an intact nest, and that was mostly destroyed by what we would call a hurricane. They call it, have other names, cyclone or whatever they call it, those storms in uh, that part of the world. And it was mostly destroyed by the time they saw it, but it was uh, about halfway up a very tall tree. Uh, at least this this is not a roping, by the way. It's not a roping. Uh, very unlikely, because what they videotaped was just not a long tail flying creature. It was different, but I believe it was a pterosaur. But it was the kind that's less common, which is found all over the world too, apparently, as far as I know. But they're not as common. They just don't have long tails at all. They they're nocturnal creatures, correct? I mean, they that's why part of the reason they're difficult to see. Yes, uh, there possibly may be a very limited number of exceptions, but I'm, I, I, I kind of doubt it. I, I believe generally you can say that, that all of these, both types that are still alive, we call modern pterosaurs, are nocturnal. Now, there are some situations, for example, in Raleigh, North Carolina, where there may be a small colony of family, whatever, of ropens that have learned to scavenge or, or feed or whatever they eat in daytime, so they're seen more often in daytime. I don't think it necessarily there's a huge number of them in Raleigh, North Carolina, but they may have found some way to, to get things done and find food in the daytime. So if, it's, if that's true, that's just an exception. Generally, they are nocturnal. Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. On The Dead Files, Amy Allen and Steve DeShavi investigate the paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the United States. Amy and Steve come from totally different perspectives when they investigate. Amy's a medium. She sees and speaks to dead people and uses this skill to find out why someone might be haunting a place. Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the dead files, and what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love tales of the paranormal. But if you want more, listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Samantha Cole. 
host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. The highly anticipated second season of the hit podcast Proof is finally here. Proof is an investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here. Proof made headlines for its first season in 2022 after proving the innocence of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend Brian Bowling when they were just 17 years old. 25 years later, on December 8th, 2022, both men were finally freed based on evidence unearthed by Proof. In the second season of Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, this time traveling the streets of Manteca, California, to uncover who really murdered 18-year-old Rene Ramos. On June the 5th, 2000, Ramos's body was found buried under a pile of debris inside the shell of a new Home Depot building. Despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, tips that were ignored until now, Renee's boyfriend, 18-year-old skateboarder Jake Silva, and Ty Lopez, the 33-year-old uncle of one of Jake's close friends, were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcast. More of my conversation with Jonathan Whitcomb when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. It's time to say hi to Colleen Forgus, our full script dispensary manager and nutritional therapist. Hey, Colleen, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Richard. How are you? Well, I'm better now, but the last uh, few few days I've been battling a cold. Of course, tis the season. It's cold and flu season. What do we have on the full script dispensary for cold and flu? Well, Richard, the product I want to talk about is called Black Elderberry Syrup. It is a natural product derived from elderberries, and it's wonderful as a daily support for the immune system or to take when you have a cold or flu. It's also great if you've got a cough at night, take a little spoonful before you go to bed and you'll have a much better sleep. Black Elderberry Syrup, and that's available at the Full Script Dispensary. To register, go to strangeplanet.ca, then click on the Full Script Dispensary button. And don't forget, all orders get 10% off, and orders over $50 ship for free. These products have not been evaluated by the FDA and are not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. If there's one thing money can't buy, it's sanity. (laughs) Conspiracy Unlimited. With Richard Serrett. Jonathan Whitcomb, author of Living Pterosaurs in America, is here. Now, this is a, a absolutely fascinating aspect of these creatures. They, they have this um, phospholuminescence yes. about them. Talk to me about that. Well, the strange thing is it's possible... I don't, I don't say that all species have that, not at all, but it's possible that there may be at least one species in both types that uh, have bioluminescence. And this is not what some people assume, that it's some accidental rubbing against uh, phosphorescent uh, uh, 
algae or moss or something. It's not that kind of, it's, a, it's an intrinsic bioluminescence. For example, the ropen of Umboy Island, let's take that. That um, animal has a controlled uh, glow of bioluminescence, which lasts about maybe five or six seconds. And then it won't glow again for quite a few, um, I, may, I would say minutes, uh, more than seconds. It would be a number of minutes, I believe. I don't know for sure. I believe it's a number of minutes between the times it can glow. And it will never glow. According to the natives on the northern part of Umbo Island, it never glows for more than around five or six seconds at a time. Um, and for example, the, um, the rope of Umbo Island, uh, according to the natives on the coast on the north side of the island, there is a particular peninsula. You can see it on a map. It's kind of the middle. It's kind of a little peninsula coming out to the north. And, at, and near the end of that peninsula is a particular tree, and the ropen will go to that. And they only see it come out there about once a month. And there's reasons for that. I'll explain later, perhaps, if we can get around to it. But it goes up to the tree. It glows as it flies and lands in the tree. And then it stops glowing. And it will be a while before it will actually uh, glow again and come down to the surface of the water to, to catch whatever it's looking for, the giant clam or a fishes or whatever. So it does have a, this particular species has a limitation on, it can glow very brightly for five or six seconds, but then it can't glow again for, for quite a few minutes perhaps. And I think it's because of a secretion, I, I think, that's on the skin that, that takes time and energy to actually uh, recharge itself, so to speak, to, to get to produce more of that secretion that can be put on the skin. What would the function of that bioluminescence be? What's the purpose? There's two main reasons that immediately come to mind. Is one of them, it, it can use it to uh, catch fish to see when it's when it's going down in the water at night. Um, at nighttime, for example, I talked to, I interviewed a man. Oh, let's see if I remember his name. Um, I believe it's David Mulcahy. That's his spelling. I think that was the one. The interview I had with a man had. If, if you see the videos, I mean, he's he's holding one or two two little boys. Um, <coughs> He told me about a time when he, with a local, uh, what we call a police officer, uh, uh, was out together at night and they were fishing. They used to, what they call it, I think they called it a torch. Uh, Americans call it a flashlight. It's a waterproof flashlight. And you took it underwater and it, they say it hypnotizes the fish so they can catch the fish at night. At possible, the rope might do something similar. Uh, I'm not sure, but it definitely helps it to to see things in certain situations like if it's fishing at night. But it also uses it to get around to where it can land. For example, I believe what happens on that, that peninsula on the north side of Umbo Island is that it turns on the glow just as it's about to land on the tree so that it can land safely and it can see where it is. That's my opinion. You know, it's just a little bit speculative, I know, but it, it makes sense. Anyway. Uh, you mentioned someone had a video uh, of a creature in a tree. Likely wasn't a, a ropen, but it might have been from the pterosaur family. Tell me about that video. Where can we see it? Well, yeah. Well, there's actually three videos that are linked together on my channel, Protect Animal Life. There's there's other videos that are about this too, and they have some of the same footage. <coughs> but basically, you need to do searching for. Um, Things like not not rope and don't search for rope because it's not a rope and uh, modern pterosaur, living pterosaur, or <coughs> flying creature, 
New Britain Island, uh, or the name um, Peter Beach, B-E-A-C-H, that would do it. Uh, I, I produce all three videos, and they, they fit together so that you can learn a little bit more from each one. But basically, they didn't see it in a tree. It was flying. What happened was uh, Peter Beach, who is a biologist, he used to teach biology at a little college, he was really sick that day, and it was the middle of the day, and he was in—he was lying down in the hut, and his partner, uh, Milt Marcy, who goes on expeditions with him occasionally to look for things like these strange creatures, uh, is coming up. Um, Milt Marcy was outside, and, the, and he and the natives saw this flying creature way up above them, a very large flying creature, and they all start yelling, and Peter noticed it and he got out of his bed but he was still sick he got his camera that was nearby and he came out and it had some difficulty he said, i think he said to me he almost felt like he might not be almost fainting because he was he was sick but he stood up and he, he pointed the camera where he thought it was the right place but it was not the kind of camera that has has uh, the kind of uh Automatic focus. Your finder right. that he needed. It was it was uh, difficult for him to deal with the, the sun shining in his eyes. He did just kind of he, so he couldn't zoom in on it. So he had a wide angle recording of it and hoping that it was his camera was pointed the right way. Later it showed he it was pointed the right way, but it was way zoomed out. Uh, you can see the creature, and there's a, a few foot, seconds of footage of that. And he's a biologist. He said there's not any bird that he ever knows about, and it's bigger than the eagles that they, he, they've seen. So it was very unusual, but it didn't seem to have a tail. And from what he heard from the natives, generally, these kind of large flying creatures in that area of New Britain Island uh, do not have a long tail, apparently. So we, we think it's the second type of pterosaur. And they all have leathery wings, no feathers. Yes. Yeah, yeah leathery wings, uh, claws on the middle of, of, of the wings. Um, yeah, a, a strange kind of shape of the wings. Uh, it's hard to see in the video, really. And I'm, I'm not relying on that video mainly for evidence of a living pterosaur because it's such a poor video, but I am relying on the testimonies of these two men who got a clear view with their eyes. They can see much better with their eyes than what we got from that video. Presumably they lay eggs. Has anyone found unusual eggs they couldn't identify, cracked shells and so forth? Well, in fact, in that same area they talk about the eggs. The natives were describing the animals. I don't know if they got the name. Natives have a, had a name that they, they, that they gave to these two Americans, but they did describe the eggs. Now, I don't have it, sorry, in front of me. I can't really say anything. But they do describe the, the color, size, the eggs, shape, perhaps. But the eggs are not laid every year. Uh, possibly, perhaps every other year, something like that. And, but the creatures themselves, when they have a nest that's, that's still in use, which is not what the, these Americans saw. They, they saw one that was old and, and broken apart and it might have been from a recent uh, storm system that went through there, but when they're still in use, the, the creatures will stay in them. It's like a sort of like a cave. In fact, some natives might call it a cave because it's a gigantic nest way up halfway up a tree, which is covered at the top, and it's totally an enclosed structure, not like some crude little uh, uh, bird nest, you know, that's open on the top. You think of eagles as being have these big nests, but they're open on the top. This is not that at all. It's totally an enclosed structure that the 
the animals will stay in, and they stay in for quite a long time. They do not come out every day or every night. They stay in there a while, and then when they do come out, they will, of course, go out to feed and then return. But I thought that was interesting. Now, I should probably uh, make sure that I do have some blog post or something that talks about these details about the eggs, because that's very interesting. The natives actually describe them. Right, right. What does ropen actually mean in their language? Well, ropen, uh, well, I tell you what it doesn't mean. <laughs> I'm sure it does not mean is a demon fly or, or, or something like that, because it's, it's just such a short name. It's, it's not meaning that. What happens is, for example, uh, it just it's just the word that the people in places like Opai Village and Gumlagon Village, they, in the Kovai language, they will use that word to mean that large nocturnal flying creature that glows at night. That's what it means. Uh, it doesn't have any other meaning I, I know of, because if you also look on the mainland, a particular part, just not too far from Amboy, it's on the mainland of Papua New Guinea, there is a, a language there that some of the natives use, and guess what? They use the same word, ropen. But you know what it means? It means just a common bird. It's just an, the general generic meaning of the word bird. So languages are kind of strange. They can evolve. They can, they can transform. And, and the people in Umboy, perhaps originally their language had the word ropen meaning uh, bird. And now they have that word in, in Umboy Island meaning this particular gigantic glowing flying creature. Are they afraid of the ropen? Well, definitely some of them probably they don't they don't want to encounter it. They they they're not. They did go with me up to uh, toward Lake Pung when I went on my expedition, and I did have oh how many was it? At least half a dozen now. Uh, I think natives. I might be including. No, actually, I tell you exactly. I think. I think there were. Four local natives, plus my um, interpreter native from the mainland, plus myself. Um, but they had no hesitancy in going up as far as this little hill, which is part way toward uh, Lake Pung. No problem with that. But we didn't get any farther. Um, I had notice in my interviews later, a few days later, with uh, three eyewitnesses of a very shocking encounter at Lake Pung, one of the natives did seem to be very nervous about talking about it. Uh, not sure why it could be. He still had some fear and uh, perhaps some superstition about the animals. So, some places, I don't know, Umboy, but some places, you know, they have a superstition that if you talk about the animal, that it will know that you're talking about it and somehow come get you or something. I, I don't know if that's the case with this particular uh, native that I interviewed, but uh, the, the, the natives are not real comfortable about actually encountering the ropen. And you, you, you didn't catch a glimpse of one? Did you see any evidence, scats, uh, like droppings or, or anything? No, I'm just... I, and, and just in terms of direct physical evidence, my, my expedition in 2004 appears to be an absolute total f uh, failure. But on the other hand, at that time, I was a forensic videographer. It was my job, it was my profession to interview people. So the interviews I had near the end of my expedition were extremely, I thought, were extremely uh, important and successful. 
uh, and that's what I do, basically interview people. That was what I did at the time. So I suppose I should be happy with that. There was the, my, my interpreter and a local man at the time, when I went to bed at night, one night, we were out looking. I, we didn't see anything, so I went to bed. And uh, not many hours after I went to bed, uh, they saw the robin flying uh, across uh, Mount Bell, uh, which is the largest mountain on the island, and it was glowing when they saw it. Uh, I want to just move over to the uh, the United States, yeah. and uh, there's a celebrated photograph online. You've actually, I believe, you've analyzed it with it's on your website, yeah. uh, which is called um, live live pterosaurs in America dot com. Live pterosaurs in America dot com. This is the famous, I guess, it's sort of a Civil War era photograph, uh, and it's of something called a pterodon, a pterodon. Or pteranodon. Yeah, tell uh, me about that. It's pteranodon, actually. Pteranodon is it? But uh, yeah, it looks somewhat like that. Not completely uh, uh, every detail, but it's a little bit that general kind of appearance. Now, the one I'm thinking about is I call it the PTP. I gave it that uh, name so that it differentiates from another photograph that's somewhat similar, but is a total fake, an obvious fake. But that one PTP photo. For uh, a couple years or so now, I've not uh, been communicating about it. I'm not using that anymore because there's a, a controversial problem with it. But um, there, there, I found some evidence of, of it being authentic, and then I had another scientist in California that found some different kind of evidence that it was authentic. But then it happened to have a problem with the, one of the wings that apparently looks similar to a, an animation someone made uh, quite a few years ago so now we have a controversy we don't know how to handle unless somebody can come up with a book or magazine where it was originally published decades ago and then that would make a complete new story but for right now we just don't have the provenance to say you know it came from a particular person or a particular book and so i, I decided just to drop it and concentrate on the eyewitnesses we have right if those interested in seeing it can go to live pterosaurs in america.com it's right on the front page if you scroll down to the bottom oh, uh, really is it still there because I, I thought the, the photo well the photo's there but the link is not working uh however people can get a sense of what we're talking about you've got essentially six uh i'm not sure if they're union soldiers or confederate soldiers it's a very sepia tone photograph from the civil war and uh uh, they're all standing uh, behind or in front of this gigantic winged creature, which uh, may or may not be a pteranodon. Um, yes, I should say a little bit about that before we leave that. If that is, just assuming that that's a genuine photo and we just haven't found the, the book or magazine yet that has that, assuming that's the case, then it's not necessarily uh, literally from the Civil War. It could be a year or two after the end of the Civil War in the South when there was the, um, what would I call it? The uh, Reconstruction. Reconstruction. That era is most likely to be in that than actually the Civil War itself. Right. Um, you mentioned that some people thought Ropen stands for, or is a word in the local dialect meaning devil flyer or something, but the word devil brings to mind the New Jersey devil. And yes. I'm wondering if there is a connection uh, between that legend and pterosaurs. Yeah, and there we get the complications, really complications. I'm not kidding the complications. Um, what happens is 
uh, we have a long-standing legend, uh, Jersey Devil, and we have an old, old uh, sketch that somebody drew based upon certain descriptions. It shows a weird-looking horse-like thing that's, that's, that's deformed greatly, and it's just not really a horse, obviously. But what happens is, when you have that legend, then when someone sees something unusual in that area of New Jersey, and they can't explain it in terms of any known uh, animal, then they'll say, oh, they saw the Jersey Devil. Well, who knows what they really saw? I mean, if they didn't get a good view and it's at night, and it's all kinds of complications. The only thing I can make out is <coughs> there is a, a um, some of the sightings of what people call Jersey Devils are uh, either Ropen or the other type. It's a living terrorist, or some of them. Not, uh, not likely all of them, but some of them, I believe, are. But there is another kind of flying creature that is also throws a, a monkey wrench in the, in the works also, which I have witnessed. It doesn't look like a pterosaur, but it's a very strange flying creature. And it doesn't, I don't know if it looks like a Jersey Devil at all, but it's very weird. And that's very large, and it has wings. and So we have all these complications. And, and there, are, there are possibilities, of course, at nighttime when people are scared of something big, that they will not recall exactly, even if they can see clearly enough to see a particular detail of a head or something. Uh, possible, the angle they saw, they might give a description that's not accurate in certain detail, or a certain detail or a certain group of details. So that's really complicated. I can't really say anything much about Jersey Devils because of all those complexities. Right. And what about the Native American legend of Thunderbirds, the Thunderbird, which figures yeah. so prominently on their totems? Yeah, definitely. I believe that some, at least some of those are from uh, living pterosaurs, no doubt. But again, there are different legends, different Native American groups, and uh, it gets difficult. The, 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 the easiest thing for me is just to deal with particular sighting and, and recent years and decades where a particular eyewitness can tell me certain details that they saw and then I can deal with that much better and get much more useful information that way. Uh, that's why I love to get people keep keep contact with everybody. If you see no one or know somebody that saw one that could be a terrorist or contact me because that makes a big difference as we get more numbers of eyewitnesses and more more of these descriptions, which I can look at, look and find out more information about which ones are actually most normally accurate. Lack of feathers is one that's just absolutely practically certain. It's not um, likely a, 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 a mistake in um, in a, per, a person's vision or something like that. It's, they, right. they, they don't have feathers. And we should mention that if they go again to live pterosaurs in America, let me spell pterosaurs as well. That's live pterosaurs, P is in Peter, T is in Thomas, E-R-O-S-A-U-R-S. That's pterosaurs, P-T-E-R-O-S-A-U-R-S. Live pterosaurs in America.com. If you scroll to the bottom, there's a, uh, a report, a pterosaur sighting. You can click on that link. Yeah, and the silent P, the first letter is silent, right? Right. How often, how, how many reports are you getting on a, either a yearly or monthly basis? Well, lately, the last few months, it's been, it's been more frequent. It's, it's sometimes several a week, and they have hundreds of reports from the United States alone, and then uh, not counting all over the other parts of the world. Um, there's not many states left that don't have a report. Um, maybe up in the north, 
central part of the United States, maybe a couple states there. And we, we finally got one from Colorado. So now Colorado is in the, is in the group. So not many states uh, do not have citing reports sent to me directly about living pterosaurs. And as yet, no other credible photographic evidence? Well, it's the, yeah, it's, 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 um, the situation is with the credible. Most people have the idea, oh, it's a really good, clear, close-up shot. It, it's obvious to pterosaurs. I don't know about that. But we have um, a number of videos and photographs um, that are not good quality for whatever reason. And then we have a lot of eyewitnesses, of course, that, that have very good views. But what I, what I really hope that sometime to get a professional wildlife photographer and then get uh, video footage uh, really high quality wherever it is and whatever part of the world, I, I'm, I'm in favor of that. But it's just it's hard to find universities and scientific groups that want to have anything to do with it. Jonathan, what's next for you? Are you planning another expedition to Papua New Guinea? I'm not necessarily. I'm not ruling it out. I'm not planning it. We have so many sightings here in the United States. My my wife and I have interviewed people here in our in our home state. Now we're in. We've lived several years in Utah. We've interviewed people here, and my wife has become involved. So I, it helps me. I don't feel so alone now. She can see the and talk with eyewitnesses, and and we can uh, both get a view of what their testimony is like, and they're very credible people. So I, I could very well just keep busy just staying here in Utah. In the meantime, people can uh, buy the books uh, Searching for Ropen and Live Pterosaurs in America, which I believe is in its third or fourth edition, correct? Yeah, well, the third edition for Live Pterosaurs in America, fourth edition for Searching for Ropens and Finding God. And then there's a new one that's come out for, for older kids and younger teenagers. It's called uh, The Girl Who Saw a Flying Dinosaur. And if you're searching online, that's actually the phrase flying dinosaur may be easier because you don't have to remember how to spell pterosaur. You just say flying dinosaur. Jonathan, it was great catching up with you. I hope we can do it again soon. Thank you. Well, thank you, Richard. Good to talk with you. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be right back to tell you a little bit about an upcoming episode. Say, I just published the January 2020 issue of my monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum. If you missed out, no problem. All you need to do is go to my website, strangeplanet.ca, and register. Just enter your name and email address, and you'll start receiving Inner Sanctum every month for free, starting in February. And once you register, your name automatically goes into the monthly draw for free Strange Planet merch. It's so simple. Just go to strangeplanet.ca, enter your name and email address. The Inner Sanctum, yours, absolutely free. Register today at strangeplanet.ca. Coming up next on Conspiracy Unlimited, how to build a community and defeat the New World Order. If we team up and form communities, then we don't need their welfare system. We don't need their healthcare system. We don't need their education system. And we don't need their police. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. 
Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. <laughs>